back. Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report, episode number 19. A lot to talk about today. We'll talk about the new bear bets that are being made in the market. We'll also talk a lot about uh, what's going on with pricing, what's going on with jobs, what kind of inflation data are we actually seeing beyond just the sticks, what are we seeing happening in politics, and what's some other news that's going on. Let's get it all covered. Let's get started. First, uh, I'd like to mention this, and, and I haven't been able to confirm this. I just saw this pop up. But uh, here's someone whom uh, I was actually having a debate with yesterday on uh, Twitter, and they just posted the following. Just got a DM from someone who worked for Google on the AI demo. Remember that Google's AI demo had the uh, failure of fact uh, regarding one of the telescopes and which telescope first saw exoplanets, blah, blah, blah. I'm not a scientist, but either way, it went wrong. The, uh, Bard gave a wrong information. And apparently, this individual says that 168 people were laid off and all they did was prepare slides for the demonstration. Google executives are upset. Uh, and the, the quote here is, me and a bunch of coworkers, isn't that my coworkers and I? Anyway, <laughs> just got laid off from Google for the AI demo gone wrong. It was a team of 168 who prepared the slides for the demo. All of us are out of jobs. First of all, how the hell do you need 168 people to put together a slideshow? You know, if, like, I mean, if, if the product works well, you shouldn't need more than one person to put the slides together if the product actually works well, and then let other people review it. What, maybe 10 people total? 168 people to put together a slideshow, and then they still can't get it right? Oh, that's pretty embarrassing. Now, Google, uh, Google stock did drop about... Uh, gosh, probably over the last five days, it's down likely somewhere around 10%, um, mostly because of this uh, AI phenomenon here. Uh, we are uh, we are actually year-to-date on Google up 6%, uh, but from its peak, it's down 11.73% just in the last few days on this uh, flub. Turkey's earthquake uh, has uh, some devastating information uh, associated with it in that now not only are we on the 100th hour of uh, incredibly survivors still coming out of the rubble, including a 10-week-old baby, now there are 22,000 feared dead with uh, many, actually confirmed dead, uh, many thousands or more expected, unfortunately, potentially tens of thousands of more uh, buried under the rubble and uh, dying or dead, which is absolutely terrible. Now, what was also extremely terrible is that apparently uh, the BBC exposed uh, the Turkish government for essentially taking uh, what they called amnesty payments, but let's be real, they're more like pay a, pay a bribe or a higher tax and uh, we'll let you skirt some of the uh, earthquake requirements. See, yesterday I was talking about how generally newer construction buildings have uh, high, much higher earthquake standards, especially out here in California, where we're clearly in an earthquake zone. Well, unfortunately, the BBC uh, provided an expose, uh, followed by their reality check, they call it, where this right here is a photo of a building that's just a few years old that ended up collapsing. In fact, here's the video of that building that is only, oh, of course, a 30-second ad. Okay, well, <laughs> we'll just go to the picture right here. Uh, so, before and after, a recently built apartment block uh, in one of the regions devastated. And uh, you can see here, the left part of the building, still standing, 
and uh, the right part completely collapsed, just sheared completely off the center of the building over here. Uh, and the question now is, why is a building that's relatively new falling apart? Well, it turns out that up to about 75,000, here's the video, up to about 75,000 newer uh, or, or just buildings in general have either suffered catastrophic damage or have collapsed within Turkey. Uh, and a substantial portion of newer buildings uh, paid for amnesty programs to essentially exempt them from new construction requirements and so or, or earthquake uh, requirements. And so these are basically payments that say, hey, look, you, uh, if you pay us a little bit more money, you don't have to comply with as much of the earthquake requirements. Some of these buildings being built in 2019 and still collapsing in an earthquake, pretty ridiculous. And it really goes to show that the Turkish government has either entirely failed at setting the proper standards for earthquake uh, building and retrofitting, or has failed to enforce those and the failure to enforce is potentially due to these amnesty payments that basically went to the Turkish government to say, hey, look, you know, we don't have the money to spend on all these earthquake rules and such you have. Uh, just, you know, rubber stamp us and let us get through the process and uh, we'll be fine, right? Well, apparently not. Apparently not. So uh, pretty terrible to think about uh, this, this, uh, a lot of this disaster potentially being avoidable had the Turkish government actually done what it was supposed to do and protect people and properly uh, establish building and safety requirements. That's the point of the building and safety department after all. Now, uh, what's also pretty devastating is that you've got a government that already doesn't have a lot of trust. I mean, the inflation in Turkey exceeds 64% at the time of this recording, about a month ago, it was exceeding 69%, and a month before that, it was exceeding 80%. So clearly, the government already has a massive lack of trust, and unfortunately, it's just gotten even worse now that uh, the government is being exposed for their nonsense uh, around building and safety. Which is just really devastating, thinking about the fact that tens of thousands of people have died. I, you know, we were looking back at how many people died uh, in World War II from the uh, atomic bombs, uh, you know, nuclear warheads on Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. And uh, we're looking at somewhere between uh, 80 to 100,000 deaths, uh, you know, in, in one city and then maybe another 40 or 50 in another. And what's, what's crazy is that if we end up getting to 40 or 50,000 deaths here in Turkey, we, we will be near the equivalent of basically an atomic bomb going off in, in one of the cities. And, and that is just, I think it puts some of the magnitude on how devastating this is, what's really happening in Turkey. I mean, if you think about it, when a plane crashes and 200 people die, that's devastating, right? I mean, it's, it's, it makes headline news and it's, it's absolutely terrible. If you divide uh, 22,000 dead by 200 people per plane, you could literally have 110 planes crash and everyone on board die. And, and it would essentially equal just the death toll where we are now. Uh, that's absolutely insane to think about it that way. Can you, I mean, one crash is devastating. Imagine 110 all on the same day. It's insane. Uh, I mean, the, the numbers are so, so remarkably high, it's it's hard to even, uh, uh, you know, picture it or, or fathom it. It's it's terrible. Uh, okay, so now uh, Russia has been launching some cruise missiles over the last 24 hours, again, targeting Ukrainian infrastructure. This has led Olaf Schultz to reiterate the plan to send uh, tanks, panzer, 
to Ukraine. Uh, the Germans expect to deliver about 80 tanks by the end of March. Uh, you've got Expedia, which uh, they're blaming a terrible Q4 on a weather-induced travel forecast or, or travel chaos. Weather-induced travel chaos. But uh, I don't know about that. Uh, we're going to do a piece here later in the video talking about this disaster of the consumer. And so we'll dive a little bit deeper into uh, that in just a moment. Uh, Russia cut its oil production by about 500,000 per day. Uh, this has led oil prices to jump in the pre-market. This is deemed retaliation for price caps on Russian oil. However, their oil output has already rebo rebounded substantially uh, from lows where we were right around the beginning of the war uh, to now closer to 11 million barrels per day. A 500,000 cut represents, uh, 500,000 barrel per day cut represents about 4.6% of Russia's output. Currently, Brent oil, that's your international blend, is up 2.24%, sitting at 86 bucks. We were starting a downtrend, and whoops, right back up after this uh, Russian oil cut. Uh, you do still have OPEC maintaining production, although there have been talks of cuts. You have WTI crude, that's the Western blend, uh, increasing 2.18% here in the pre-market. Tesla, a semi-small update on that. Pepsi has taken delivery of all 15 of the Tesla semi-trucks. Apparently, the California Air Resources Board paid for half of a, one of them. Now, I, I don't actually think each of these semis costs around $2 million, but uh, the uh, report on this indicated a, a $30.8 million project as what these 15 semis were a part of. Be nice to get some more details on this since we don't know exactly how much those semi-trucks are selling for. Now, uh, it's also worth breaking down why I was having this debate with uh, this person on uh, Twitter. And uh, I, I think it's, um, let me put it this way. There is a tendency of people on the internet to mislead other people, especially when they are lowly educated on things that they're talking about. Unfortunately, most people are lowly educated on real estate investing. And that's why I believe that there is a substantial opportunity for people to build massive wealth in real estate. And honestly, the more I see this sort of lack of understanding by normal people on the internet when it comes to real estate, the more excited I get because I know how to make a lot of money in real estate. I know it's an in-person business. I know it's a people business, and I know I got to be there to make money. That's why I have a housing startup. But let's talk about what this individual says. And let's break this down because this individual, let me just be up front and say they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, does that bias my opinion at all? I don't think so because I think I'm right. But anyway, Recession Confession says, My neighbor bought a house for $650,000 last year. He lost his job at a tech company. His house has been on the market for 45 days. Nothing. The only bid was for $350,000. He is running out of money. The real estate market is going to crash so hard. This tweet got 1 million views, 5,300 likes. Because it's dramatic. It sounds intense. Oh my gosh, this sounds terrible. But guess what's missing? in his post. Now he'll end up giving me this info because I call him out on it. But what's missing when you first read this? Well, most people, they read this and they think, oh my gosh, bought a house for $650,000? And he's only got a bid for $350,000? Holy smokes, that means the property's fallen by essentially half. 
That's the signal that this individual is trying to manipulate people who are uneducated in real estate to believe. So the individual wants you to believe that real estate prices went from $650,000 down to $350,000. And keep in mind, I sold my real estate at the beginning of 2022, expecting not only to start a housing startup, but also expecting real estate prices to come down. So if real estate prices came down 80 uh, or, well, let's see here, 350 divided by 650, real estate prices came down 53.8% uh, uh, as in this, uh, oh no, 350 is 53. So this would be a, this would represent, a, to be exact here, a 46.2% decline in real estate prices. For me to believe that real estate prices came down 46.2% would actually reiterate why I sold and would actually reiterate the benefits of me being able to start my housing startup. But the problem is, I don't base my decisions on uh, misleading information like this. But why is this mis misleading? I mean, Kevin, after all, if the house, it was bought for $650,000 and today the only bid is $350,000, doesn't that mean the market price is 46.2% lower? No. First of all, that's not how real estate works. The real estate industry is a people business. And when a property is overpriced for $650,000, people won't make an offer on it. Normal home buyers will not make an offer on it. The only people who will lowball properties listing price are generally investors or people who are brand new to the market. People who are brand new to a real estate market will often throw low balls out left and right, and they'll just end up offending a lot of real estate agents and sellers, and they'll end up getting nothing, and they'll end up very devastated. The proper way to lowball is actually to get on the phone with the listing agent, or your, your agent get on the phone with the listing agent, and work through the issue in the presentation before you present a lowball. You don't just go spaghetti lowball. That's stupid. Now, some people do that, and you'll generally only get cash offers or investors basically trying to bottom feed, right? They see something and they say, oh, let's send a lowball offer to every property that's been on the market for more than 30 days. Let's spaghetti them out, we'll call them. We don't even call the agents, you just throw them out. That's very normal, but it's not actually the definition of what, where the real estate market is. And see, that's because we know a few things. First of all, we know the psychology of a home seller and a home buyer is very simple. Most home buyers realize that a seller's probably going to be upset with an offer that exceeds a 10% reduction in the listing price. And as a result, most home buyers won't even bother making an offer unless it's within a striking range of around 5%. Now that's actually really interesting psychologically because that means if this $650,000 seller, if instead of waiting 45 days, realized that most offers happen within the first 10 days, and then they just drop their price by day 14 to $599,000, they could have potentially knocked an offer out for 550 but you actually won't get the 550 offer even if you're worth 550 when you're listed at 650. You're too far away to actually attract the home buyers. That's because the home buyers who are qualified and ready to close don't spaghetti offers. This is not eBay. People don't throw offers out like they do on eBay. It doesn't take one second to make an offer. It actually takes an agent probably 30 minutes to write an offer. It takes the client another 30 minutes at least of their own time to actually read it if they read it and go through it. You know, who knows, maybe they're blindly signing it fine, then you can cut that out. But then the agent has to put it together and prep it in an email and contact the other agent and submit it. There's a lot of work involved relative to putting a bid in on, you know, sort of the free market, stock market or eBay there's a lot of work involved. And that's not to say that the market isn't efficient. 
but let's be real, the real estate market is not efficient, <laughs> okay? There are a ton of inefficiencies in the real estate market. And that's actually why sometimes people do these lowballs because they realize the property could be worth 550. If we pick it up for 350, my gosh, it's a steal. That's because of the way the market works. The real estate market is not purely efficient. You do not have perfect information because there is no open bidding on real estate. If, if this was an auction and this property was listed for $350,000, I guarantee you, I don't even care where the property is. I guarantee you the property would get 37 to 50 offers. Boom, like that. How do I know that? Well, this is where we can actually use data. See, the nice thing is we know that the most real estate prices have fallen throughout the country off of peak. And this assumes the individual bought the property at the peak in April or May, depending on the particular area. If the individual bought the property at peak, the peak real estate decline that we've seen throughout the country is about 21% not 46%, 21% would represent a price of about $513,000, which would indicate that if this seller listed the property for $499, they would probably get multiple offers and may even sell for closer to that $550, which is not that full uh, a 21% reduction. That's because real estate is a people business. It does not work the way people think that it does, but that's okay. It creates opportunities for people who understand that. So. This individual is essentially creating this tweet that has gone viral, misleading people into thinking the real estate market has dropped uh, 50%, essentially, 46 to 50%. And as a result of this anecdote, not as the result of any actual data, the individual says the real estate market is going to crash so hard, so bigly. This is the kind of information that in my opinion, you're stupid to believe. Now. It would be concerning if we could actually get facts, like what's the property address? How much was it actually listed for? Is the property a massive fixer upper or is it move in ready? Is it under high tension glow in the dark power lines or what's wrong with it? And I guarantee you, if I look at the address, I could tell you the property's overpriced probably by a range of 15 to uh, 10 to 15%, probably somewhere in that range. And if they drew, if they lowered their price, it would sell. There's no reason for a property to be on the market if it's, if it's a normal property for more than 14 days. It doesn't take more than 14 days to sell a property. If a properties on the market for more than 14 days, guess what the problem is? Price. So now I, I agree, the property is overpriced. I agree the individual paid probably closer to the peak of the market for the property. But does that mean because the only bid is $350,000 that the property's worth 350? Absolutely not, because that's not how the real estate market works. Now, you know that this individual is uh, clearly uninterested in providing uh, actual data because the individual comes out and says, oh, well, I don't wanna dox the person, so of course we're not gonna get the address. Uh, and on top of that, the individual then resorts to ad hominem attacks and says, oh, well, Kevin hasn't lived through a bear market, so he doesn't know. Oh, fantastic argument as if somebody who's actually educated in the real estate space can't understand how markets function because they're younger. Okay, brilliant argument. In my opinion, this is the kind of internet 
idiocracy, if that's even a word, I may have made that up, but that misleads people. My goal on this channel is always to provide you perspective. I don't care if I'm right or if I'm wrong on what's gonna happen on the market tomorrow, what's gonna happen with CPI data. I do my best, I try to increase my odds and hopefully we can increase your odds as well. But when you provide misleading anecdotes, I get upset because they lack logic. Logic is actually something that I teach in my courses, my Stocks and Psychology of Money group, my Elite Hustlers group, my real estate investing course, but most people on the internet don't want to post logical tweets because those don't get as many views. They're not as potentially viral to post logic. It's much easier to just resort to ad hominem attacks, which are at person attacks, and try to offend somebody in a way that's really just a red herring. It has nothing to do with the fundamentals of how real estate work, uh, how real estate works. But then again, uh, like I said, every time I see stuff like this, I actually get excited and I, rather than saying they're an idiot, which they are, I, I may as well just say thank you. Thank you, Mr. Recession Confessions, for being a complete uneducated idiot about real estate because you make it easier for me to make money in real estate. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that is true. So uh, next up we have, uh, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, Alexa, just shut up. Oh my gosh, here it goes again. Yeah, you know, once you have Alexa, we just switched Wi-Fi networks, and once you have her starting to talk, she just does not shut up. It is so annoying. I think I just want to take them and throw them all against the wall. <laughs> uh, but anyway, apparently Alexa's actually talking about potentially ending the whole, uh, or Amazon's talking about ending the whole uh, Alexa division, which I thought was, oh my God. <laughs> I keep triggering it. <laughs> All right, anyway, uh, this morning we are going to get the University of Michigan Consumer uh, Confidence read. We'll also get inflation expectations this morning. This is a survey of just over 500 individuals and we'll be getting that uh, information uh, in about uh, an hour. Uh, hold on, let me see. Yeah, it's, it comes out at 7 a.m. California time, 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, so stay tuned for that. The expectations on that are that in one-year inflation expectations will hold at 4%, and the 5 to 10, actually that's a one-tenth of a percent increase from 3.9 to 4, and the 5 to 10-year outlook will sit at 2.9. All right, so let's see. Uh, okay, like what... I mean, look, I appreciate you being a member here, but in fairness, why would you say that? Okay, so we've got an individual here, Foodle, who says, I have to ask this, do you think facts even matter when it comes to the market due to sentiment scoring? Yes, absolutely facts matter. Facts fundamentally always matter. My goodness, the worst thing we could do as a society is to actually ignore facts and reality. Uh, I, I make my decisions based on facts and when the facts change, I change my mind. That's scary. Gas Man says, the story is made up. You're probably right. He probably did make up his story actually just to create a uh, some sort of viral tweet. Uh, in my opinion, it's, it's I mean, that honestly, at that point, it's just fraudulent, right? That That's actually a really interesting part. Uh, let me see here. I want to make a mention of that. So now think about that. If the story is completely made up and the person just made up the story to get a viral tweet and therefore 
it makes sense why they're not providing city data, uh, location data, anything about the property, which look, we're not asking for, uh, you know, let's publicly send the address everywhere. How about you even just privately send it to me? I look at properties all day long, privately send it over. Let me, let me take a look at it. Let's look at the actual data. Oh no, no, wouldn't want to do that. Hey, want to ask your friend uh, if he's okay with Kevin looking at it and giving you a free expert consultation on why your property isn't selling? Who knows, maybe I could tell you to make a small little adjustment and it'll make a big difference. Oh no, 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 wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, because the story's probably made up. Uh, and in which case, th if the story is made up, then, then what's even more disgusting is that if people believe these stories, they're being completely misled but they don't have a reason not to believe this person because he's getting a lot of likes on it. It's, it's disgusting. It's an abuse of social media. Uh, and uh, this is exactly the kind of stuff that, that just leads to a further uneducated uh, society and, and ultimately uh, people reiterating why they're living paycheck to paycheck. And it's not their fault. It's our schools don't teach logic. Sad. Absolutely sad. All right, so now let's talk about, uh, oh man. All right, this is an interesting one, okay? So on the note of, of logic uh, and studying logic and, and perspective, oh, you're gonna, y'all you, gonna love this one. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is pretty incredible. Now, we're, we're not trying to put on our tinfoil hats here. We're going to do our best to be as uh, neutral and unbiased in our analysis of what I'm about to show you. But I'll tell you, it, uh, it, it, it doesn't look good. Stand by while I get this out. Okay, here we go. So, uh, here we go. Uh, one second. All right, we've got to talk about the Chinese spy balloon and the complete lies that uh, China purports on the internet. Now, what's really incredible about this is how they actually use YouTube to trick us. Now, this is pretty incredible, and I want you to come with me for a moment. In fairness, it takes a little bit of tinfoil hatting, but let's be real, this is probably exactly what's happening. And the reason I say that is even though the source that we're going to look at that potentially confirms our tinfoil hat is not one that generally people who wear tinfoil hats like. But I'll tell you, it's pretty damning. So first, we're going to start by uh, understanding that there are people who live in China who post videos about China. And we also obviously know that there has been a Chinese uh, spy balloon, quote unquote spy balloon, and that's because China calls it a weather balloon. And now the United States government says, look, this is a spy balloon that's capable of intercepting our communication signals. And the People's Liberation Army is basically using this weather balloon because it's a low cost way to spy on your, uh, your uh, you know, oppose, uh, opponent's communications and weather balloons, weather balloons, balloons can actually float in the air substantially longer and go undetected substantially longer than planes can. If China flew a spy plane by, it'd be obviously a big slap in the face. Planes can't fly that long without refueling, whereas a balloon can float around for weeks, potentially undetected. As in the past, the United States has admitted they have failed at detecting other spy balloons until it was too late, until they've already been able to uh, explore, so to speak. Anyway, China's latest spy balloon has potentially spanned uh, 40 countries 
of spying and U-2 spy planes that we use have uh, that have flown past this balloon revealed uh, an, an array of active surveillance equipment. Now, we're actually waiting to take apart uh, this spy balloon. Some of the initial reports are that some of the pieces that were used to manufacture the balloon were actually made in America. They've got English writing on them, uh, but obviously it sustained a lot of damage from the missile that struck it. And I imagine we're not getting everything yet in terms of what this balloon actually consists of. But let's be clear. The position is from the United States that this is a spy balloon. The position from China is that this is just a weather balloon. Now, what I'd like for you to think about is the following. Look at this guy. This guy has a YouTube channel. It's called Living in China. And the idea here is that he's just a normal dude who's making videos telling you about what it's actually like living in China. And so he'll tell you, hey, how bad's COVID out here? You know, what, whatever. He'll try to give you sort of the reality. And so he writes, it makes this video. China trolls America with spy balloon. Now, what's really interesting about this, first of all, is that you've got a video and a channel. This individual usually gets around 50 to 80,000 views uh, per video, which is actually pretty good. Somebody who gets 50 to 80,000 views would probably expect somewhere around 500 to uh, maybe 2,000 Patreon subscribers, especially if the fee is less than $5. You know, maybe about a 1% conversion would be very reasonable, right? So we go over here to his Patreon and we can see that the lowest option to be a Patreon member is $1 per month. And what's fascinating is this individual has a grand total of 39 patrons. Now that's interesting because wait a minute, why are the views so high but your conversion to patrons so low when in every video you also pin and pitch it. And then what's also interesting is listen to the sum of the comments here. Let me get this straight. US spends $3 trillion on its defense budget annually, but can't stop a Chinese hot air balloon first spotted by civilians in Montana looking up at the sky. Well, first of all, that's not true. The United States and Canada detected it when it was off the coast of Canada before it ever even came to the United States. And the U.S. defense budget is actually slightly under $1 trillion. It's closer to $900 billion, which means this is a 3x exaggeration. And they're trying to describe this as a hot air balloon rather than what it actually is. And they're misleading us in terms of who first saw it. And it's got a lot of likes. It's got a heart from the creator. We've got some more comments. As a country independent, a country that independently owns a space station, it actually wants to use balloons to monitor the US. I laughed so hard. When the balloon was shot down, no explosion, just a shredded rubbly balloon falling from the sky to use a $1.1 million missile to shoot down a weather balloon that costs perhaps a few thousand dollars is great. And basically every single comment here is making fun of America. This one, I'll give it to them. This one was actually pretty good. China was actually searching for intelligent life. Didn't find any. <laughs> okay, now, so, but what's interesting is all of these comments are pro-China, anti-US. Every single one of them. No patrons, and every single comment is pro-China, okay? Now, watch this, okay? What does the guy have to say? Uh, I don't remember the exact point, so we're just going to hop in somewhere around here. Let's just listen to the way he's talking about this balloon for a moment. And then I'm going to show you a big reveal, okay? This is like an exposed video. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I hope the Chinese don't come for me. I'm probably not invited to China. Anyway, here we There's go. There's another part I saw, I think it was on Fox again, or CNN. 
and it was like it was saying the balloon was uh, was flying over very sensitive areas of America and and military air bases let me tell you one thing military America's military bases right if you fly anywhere in the world you're gonna fly over one of their um, their military bases because they've got that many I know what they should have asked the uh, the Pentagon guy they should have asked him and said hey excuse me mr. Pentagon man do you know how many military bases do you have around the globe all right so you kind of get he's making some you know uh, kind of arguments about like ah come on there are military bases everywhere fine oh here we go with the weather okay let's let's see here Keep going. Down the balloon, it poses no threat, because obviously they know that it's a it's a weather it's a weathered aircraft. And um, but you know they're just twisting it, they're twisting it because it fits their narrative. They can use it. There was like because it, it came out that they've been following this, tracking this thing for like three or four days, but then only the stories only just come out like it, it today. So you can see they've been thinking for a few days like, oh, how can we? How can we twist this? It's just some weather balloon. I don't know what's going on, but it's come, out, it's come over here. How can we twist this? Ah, yes, say it's a spy balloon. Yeah, that's a great way. The American citizens, they'll, they'll believe it straight away. <laughs> and, and All right, so you see what he's doing, right? He's manipulating his audience against the United States narrative, which don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the U.S. narrative is correct. The U.S. bullshits us all the time. The Nord Stream Pipeline is probably a fantastic example of this. But what I'd like to do is introduce you to everyone's favorite source in the world. I'm kidding, obviously, but it still has very interesting perspective. Ready for it? Check this out. 2021 uh, article. I actually read this in print. I know that sounds crazy because I, um, <laughs> I, I, I still get the print paper, but that's how I, I don't miss stuff like this and I, I save stuff like this. But anyway, how Beijing influences the influencers. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this, right? But basically, listen to some of the allegations the New York Times made here. Made here. The videos of these Chinese influencers have a homespun feel, but on the other side of the camera often stands a large apparatus of government organizers, state-controlled news media, and other official ampl amplifiers as part of the government's widening attempts to spread pro-Beijing messaging around the world. They basically have offices of hundreds of Chinese people leaving positive comments. They're not actually bots, but they're, they're like, Troll farms is basically what they are. State-run news outlets and local governments have organized and funded pro-Beijing influencers' travel. So basically, the creators don't need to actually make money on Patreon because they're getting paid by the Chinese government. They have paid or offered to pay creators. They've generated lucrative traffic for the influencers by sharing videos with millions of influencers. So the government of China is sharing these to prop up the views while they're paying them. And what are they encouraging? Most of the YouTubers have lived in China for years and say their aim is to counter the West's increasingly negative perceptions of the country. They decide what goes into their videos, they say, not the Communist Party. But even if the creators do not see themselves as propaganda tools, Beijing uses them that way. Chinese diplomats and representatives have shown their videos at news conferences and promoted the creations on social media. Blah, 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 the synthetic voices. This is an effort to control the narrative, of course. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Here, look at this one. 
in the in the spring, so and so talks about how it's totally normal here. Look, people are enjoying kebabs. People are doing their job and living their lives, right? This is like the the anti kind of COVID narrative, right? And it's fascinating because I actually that's so funny that they uh, the New York Times mentioned this over here because if I go back to this guy's videos and I go to his channel, what you're gonna actually see is watch this, okay? Look at this. So videos, you go over here. First of all, look at the titles. Ch uh, China trolls America with spy balloon. America can't compete with Chinese infrastructure. Family fun in Shenzhen. Uh, what do we have over here? Uh, da, da, da. Oh yeah, yeah. Everyone is infected with COVID in China. Okay, so it's it's obviously clickbait. But anyway, you click on it, and what, look look at uh, what what you get. You say that again, I will dasni. Hold on, let me back back up a little bit. So what does that tell you now? They're trying to suppress the the the, the truth about China. You know, I'm not going to say it's positive what I'm showing. I'm just it, it's the truth, really. Um, so you know, you got to watch out. Not only Western media, but also these kind of Western uh, uh, social media platforms. They're also they're not they're, they're trying to hold back and suppress the truth. And hey. So there he slams Western media. Uh, there's a part where he walks around and he's like, look, people are happy here. Where, where is it? They're not wearing masks. Sometimes I wear a mask where I think it was right here. You can see lots of people around. Most people not wearing masks. Um, look at this. Look at this guy. He just straight up looks like he works for the government. <laughs> like he's been planted there. Like, okay, good, good. Honey, we're in the shop. Uh, we're, we're in the shot. Act happy. Act happy. I've already had COVID, <laughs> as you. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Uh, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, look. Who knows? Maybe it's true. But when you align the extremely biased narrative with uh, what we know about logic and what we know about the government's desire. Uh, to, to spin things. Uh, remember, it's the Communist Party of China, right? They control the state media, right? Uh, it, it, along with this, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, it doesn't look good. Along with like the Patreon issues that we saw, right? It just, it just doesn't look good. Now, I've gone through all of this uh, and one of the things they even went as far as saying is that there are actually potentially scripts. I don't know, remember where they said it. Maybe they didn't use the word script, but I think it was like somewhere in the article, they talk about how the Chinese government will essentially even go as far as giving these people bullet points and like, hey, maybe you can massage the message like this. We'll pay you more if you say this, you know, maybe try to manipulate people into, into realizing that Western social media platforms are the ones that are misleading you. It's not us. Uh, who knows? But uh, like, this was interesting. Stuart Wiggins' channel, The Chinese Traveler, does not indicate that he works for the People's Daily. Yet, that was how Mr. Wiggin, who is British, was identified by another state newspaper, China Daily, in his coverage of Date with China campaign. So, in other words, the guy here's an example where uh, somebody who has a YouTube channel, uh, the, the Chinese Traveler, uh, is actually someone who works for the Chinese state-run news agency, China Daily but doesn't disclose that on the channel. So, so it's very, very interesting. Uh, so anyway, I thought I would share that because personally, I am not surprised that China is doing that at all. I don't believe a word China says, and I'm not here to say you should believe everything you hear of in the United States. 
I just want to wake up a little bit more this idea about the Chinese propaganda machine. And boy, I think it's a lot stronger than we actually realized or ever thought it was. All right, let's listen to Gensler for a moment. What does he have to yap about? And investing at need to properly comply and disentangle these bundled products. The business model that they've set up has, is rife with conflicts. And so we've been very candid with them. I've done it in multiple speeches since I came to the agency. We'll continue to engage. We're technology neutral. But if this field has any chance of survival and success, it's time-tested rules and laws to protect the investing public. Disclosure, full, fair, and truthful disclosure. Address right. conflicts and disaggregate these bundled businesses and don't have your hand in the customer's pocket using their funds right. or your own uh, sure, again, platforms. So but in terms of the, the, the larger industry and whether the, I mean, you, you even seem to suggest the larger industry may or may not survive. Um, you know, one of the pieces of that survival to some degree, I think, has been this idea that one day there may be something like a Bitcoin ETF or something else. Grayscale, as you know, appealing uh, the SEC's Bitcoin ETF decision, which is effectively to say it can't happen. Is there any path at which you think either that specific ETF or something like it could? The, the paths, I'm not going to speak about one, but let me generally say, Andrew, the path forward is well trodden. Whether it's large companies that you follow every day, the Apples and, the, and, and other tech companies or the automobile companies, manufacturing companies know how to register their offerings. The exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ and so forth know how to be compliant and come into registration. The big broker dealers and the small thousands of broker dealers, the mutual funds. Right. I dare I go on. We have tens of thousands of registrants that properly in good faith comply. They register, they make the proper disclosures. All right, Gensler here is basically making the argument that, hey, like, get into compliance and then we'll list your Bitcoin ETF. Uh, yeah, I think that's going to be very difficult for, <laughs> for, for uh, uh, anyone in the crypto space to really get into substantial compliance, uh, with the exception of, like, some of the brokerages. But in terms of, like, actually getting some of these coins listed, it's, it's probably going to be a while before we get a Bitcoin ETF. I know Kathy Wood's going for it. You've got a lot of companies going for it. I don't think the SEC is going to go for crypto for a while. They're not a big fan of crypto. I'll just share sort of a, an anecdote with you. And it's an anecdote, so take it for what it's worth. But uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of securities attorneys uh, over the past really three, four years. I mean, I've talked to banking attorneys. I've talked to crypto attorneys. I've talked to NFT attorneys. I've talked to real estate attorneys. I mean, you name it. Any, any kind of uh, fund attorney that exists, I've, I've almost talked to. And uh, what I regularly hear is that anytime you put something in front of the SEC that even mentions crypto once, your processing time will probably 3x. This is just kind of an interesting anecdote. All right, now, 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 we got to talk about the bear case scenario. But first, a quick little look at futures. It does look like that futures are trying to recover a little bit. You've got uh, the NASDAQ down about eight tenth, uh, tenths of a percent right now. Tesla's down about one six. Disney down uh, about 0.82. You did have a massive sell-off on Lyft, which we'll talk about Lyft a little bit later with uh, the consumer. You're down about 32% here in the pre-market on Lyft. Uh, let me just put it this way. No PP. No PP. Which what have I always said 
about the taxi companies. No PP. Now, don't get me wrong. Uber did well, but still, taxi companies, no PP. All right. Now it's time to talk about the bears. Oh, the bear case scenario. All right. The Bears are back, and we're going to start with a report by who is now known as the Cocaine Bear. We're going to start by looking at a perspective from the Cocaine Bear. We'll talk about what's actually happening in the bond market and some massive red flags that are popping up in the bond market, but those red flags could potentially turn bullish. I'll talk about how those red flags could turn bullish. We'll also look at Morgan Stanley's bear case. So. If you're looking for FUD, this is probably your video, but that FUD could actually turn bullish, and I'm going to show you how it could turn bullish towards the end of the video. So, if you want some fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and see what the bears are saying, which you always want to elevate your perspective, let's get started with the Cocaine Bear from Robobank. I get quite a lot of direct and indirect feedback to the Global Daily. Some of it positive, some of it negative. However, yesterday for the first time, I was told I was on cocaine for arguing that higher rates can, in some cases, lead to higher inflation. Okay, this is actually uh, a very traditional argument that initially when rates go up, the cost of doing business goes up, and therefore you end up actually in the short term increasing inflation when you start increasing interest rates. This is not wrong, and it's not actually the fundamental point of what I want to show here. However, what I want to show is that this individual reports what exactly what I'm seeing in the bond market as well. That Bloomberg, uh, Refinitiv, Reuters, we are seeing all over the place that traders and journalists are, and analysts are betting that U.S. interest rates may go as high as 6% which is the opposite bet that we have been seeing getting made. Now, unfortunately, this is starting to actually materialize in the Fed's terminal rate. We have been sitting at a Fed terminal rate. We've been pretty much range-bound. I'm looking at the chart right here between October and the end of January. So January 31, October 1 and January 31. We have been range-bound between 5.13% and 4.9% as a terminal rate of where the Federal Reserve is going to end. So basically pretend it's been very, very volatile between that on rate projections. Well, since the jobs report, this terminal rate has actually taken a solid leg up. And that's what it looks like now is a solid leg up to currently the Fed's terminal rate being priced in is actually 5.33% which is higher than what the Federal Reserve projects of a 5.1% terminal rate. Now, that's actually interesting because the Federal Reserve usually likes to massage markets and dialogue before they actually make any kind of rate decisions. Now, this move up was on jobs data. Jerome Powell's already tried to explain down the jobs report by suggesting, ah, well, financial conditions tightened as soon as the report came out which he's not wrong about. Financial conditions did tighten right afterwards. But it's not stopping people from making bets that rates could go up as high as 6%, and some are even going as far as calling for 8% rates. Now, what's interesting as well is this individual is basically making this argument that we might end up seeing a structural shift in America, that ultimately we build more of our things at home. 
He calls this the global neo-mercantilism. Basically, hey, you know what? We're going to encourage sending stuff out and selling stuff to other people. And we are going to discourage bringing stuff in because we want to create more at home. It's basically the deglobalization argument. So here you've got one particular bear who says, look, we could face higher uh, rates, which will actually push inflation higher uh, combined with deglobalization. Now you're in a situation where you have a recipe for disaster. Rates going up, inflation still going up, leading more inflation pressures because rates keep going up. And what ultimately ends up happening? Well, you end up in a situation of stagflation. This is your classic stagflationary argument, right? Unfortunately, the problem is you're actually seeing now the market try to start pricing in more inflationary concerns. Uh, and higher rate concerns. In fact, yesterday's bond auction was terrible, suggesting that markets expect rates to go higher. When rates go higher, bond yields fall, or, or sorry, uh, bond prices fall, bond yields go up, right? Rates going up, prices fall. Now, that's interesting because yesterday's auction was so terrible. Why? Well, because basically people think that why would I pay that price for your auctions? I think the price of those uh, bonds is going to go lower. So I'll just wait until it's lower. And sure enough, if you look at the 10-year treasury yield today, what do we see? We see a 3.69. This morning, we were sitting at a 3.7 handle. We're basically trending back to that 4% level on the 10-year treasury, which is not only bad for the cost of doing business for companies, but it's also bad from the point of view of real estate. And this is why money is pouring into option bets, betting on higher rates. This is a very clear and consistent belief across the board uh, from Wall Street right now. And one of the reasons is that CPI forecast for next week is not fantastic. The fact that that CPI forecast for Valentine's Day is suggesting we might see CPI month over month data reads coming in at 0.5%, which is a 6% annualized rate is leading a lot of people to say, holy smokes, when that print comes out, the market's going to sell off, especially if we beat it and it comes in higher, right? Worse, the number comes in higher. Uh, then, uh, then, then we want to be positioned and hedged. So what are you starting to see? You're seeing a lot more inflows into hedging. You're seeing a very negative outlook in terms of uh, where, where the stock market belongs to go or should be going. And even this morning, uh, there was a lot of talk from Wall Street analysts about how the only reason we had a rally in January was a short covering temporarily under multiple expansion, which the last thing you want if you're going into a recession is multiple expansion. Since usually the first thing that collapses in a recession are stock multiples, then earnings fall and stocks fall even more. But if you're getting multiple expansion, then you're kind of having this bet that everything's good. You're betting on sort of the fairy tale that inflation's going to come down, jobs will stay strong, which means we won't go into a recession. It's a, you know, that's obviously the hope. That's the soft landing bet. But people aren't buying it. They're not buying it so much so that previously, as of just eight days ago, the implied policy rate curve looked like this. On screen now, you will see the implied overnight rate and the number of hikes that you expect to see from the Fed. And what you see is a peak at 4.9% with cuts starting in July. And then you have this bar that goes really low on the right because those are the number of uh, cuts basically cumulatively incorporated. And you're looking at over 1.5% in cuts by January. 
that's pretty consistent with the belief that we have over 1.7% in cuts priced in by the end of the year. That chart has completely changed in the last eight days since the jobs report. The chart does not look anything like what you just saw or heard about, depending on if you're listening to this on Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify. This particular chart right here shows you what things look like as of last night. You can see zero cumulative cuts priced in. And this is why we've had a few red days over the last few days here. What do we have? Zero cuts priced in. That's not great. What do we have over here? January 31st, no cuts priced in. And look at that peak. That peak in July actually potentially suggesting a 25 basis point hike in June and July. That peak now sitting around that 5.3 level. Uh-oh. So what does this mean? Again, more bearish bets being made on the CPI report coming out. Now, I mentioned to you that there could be a reason that this would end up going bullish, right? Yes, stand by for that. We're going to talk about that. But first, we got to talk about what Morgan Stanley says. And particularly, I want to look at what Mr. Wilson says. Now, Mr. Wilson is your big bad bear. He's not the cocaine bear. He's just another bear. He is a pretty big bear. And this individual says that, look, while it may take longer for the market to price in materially our below consensus view on earnings and the Fed's restrictive policy, we reiterate that this new bull market is nonsense and that essentially the market is going to go down a lot more. This individual suggests that forward earnings expectations are way higher than they should be. We're finally getting negative revisions. And ultimately, multiple expansion is not why we should be rallying right now. Uh, now, it's worth noting, and I wrote this on the side here, that 60% of S&P companies that reported through January 27th beat and 69, uh, beat on, on EPS. Uh, and 69%, 60% beat on revenue, 69% beat on EPS. I gotta fix my little note there on the side. But anyway, uh, he suggests that, hey, look, based on their research, Forward EPS growth is now negative for just the fifth time since 2000. And history therefore shows that price downside is in front of us, not behind us. And he creates this chart over here, which shows you uh, that we've had negative forward EPS in 2001. And sure enough, prices via the S&P 500 fell afterwards. You had a negative hit in 2008 lower stock prices afterwards. You had a negative hit in 2015. Now this one I'm gonna call a little bit of a false flag. This is interesting because yes, even though there was some temporary turmoil in the stock market, that turmoil was really nominal. You're talking about maybe three, two to three months of a little bit of pain, but that negative signal right here was a bad time to sell because the market is up way substantially from that. So that was a bad signal. That's where his chart and graph falls apart. Obviously, negative forward EPS in the COVID pandemic and then now. But if you take out, let's do this for a moment. Let's try to dismantle this. If we take out COVID, if we take out now, because now has not happened yet, and if in 2015 we're like, well, this is bull crap. Let's take that out because nothing happened in 2015. Like you would have been better not to have sold then, right? That would, that would You would have missed out a lot. So if you take out what hasn't happened yet, COVID and 2015, his chart doesn't look that impressive anymore. 
Now you're only suggesting that, hey, well, stuff was still worse in the pan or, uh, in, in the dot-com bubble, sure, but our stock market today has fallen three times as fast as the dot-com bubble. And if you look at the structural problems of 2008, you kind of wonder, like, are we really going to face a 2008? Or if inflation goes away, could we potentially avoid that, right? So, you know, obviously the bears have their arguments and the bulls have their arguments, and that's fine. EPS surprise, he says, uh, on, in terms of growth, even though it's positive, it's the lowest that we have seen since the great financial crisis. Uh, and he does actually suggest, and I, I, this is not actually what I'm seeing a lot of, but but, but you are seeing a, a, a more long exposure here in January than you have seen since September. Now, this is true, though, because you, and based on surveys, you have a lot of institutions suggesting they want more exposure to like tech and growth, for example, in January than they did in September. But it's still lower than what we've seen throughout 2021. And he kind of cuts this chart off in September of 2021 because, quite frankly, in my opinion, the chart would be a lot higher to the left of that than to the right of this. But, but whatever. So he's obviously he's trying to make his case over here. He also then talks about... While some of the upside surprise can be attributed to, okay, this I think is the jobs report. Yes, this is the jobs report. Friday's blowout jobs report. While some of the upside surprise can be attributed to seasonal and longer term adjustments to the data, it's hard to argue the labor data is not strong, which means there's really no reason for equity investors to get excited about cuts in rates. Now, in fairness, the market has already removed rate cut pricing over the last few days. So like if you think the market's still excited about cuts in 2023, Wrong. It's already been removed, which on one hand, and this is kind of leading to where my conclusion goes, uh, but but my conclusion, don't worry, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's some more to it. Uh, it's actually kind of bullish in some degree because like if the market's already removed price cuts from 2023 and how much has the S&P fallen, like nominally? I mean, let's look for a moment. Let's go to the SPY and let's go to the day chart on the SPY. And what do we have on the day chart of the SPY? I mean, look at that. There's there's like no downside movement over here. So we ran to 418 for a moment at peak within the day. We didn't even close at that. We closed at 415. Right now we're at 405. Okay, well, 405 divided by 415, what are we down? Two and a half percent? Well, big whoop. Who cares, right? If if a two and a half percent downside on the S&P 500 is all it took to price in no cuts in 2023, <laughs> it doesn't sound too bearish to me. Maybe we're all okay with higher rates for longer, you know? Uh, but anyway, this individual makes the, the very strong claim, or in their opinion, that, hey, look, no rate cuts, 23? Well, you got more pain coming. That, that is their argument, right? And if you combine that with the cocaine bear, you have a story that's kind of like, yeah, this isn't good, right? Now, what you also have is this potential that, yeah, rates could stay higher longer. In fact, Ken Rogroff, who is a Harvard professor, suggests that, look, generally, as populations grow and economies mature and democracies mature, generally, looking back over the past 700 years, generally, over the history of financial markets, we tend to see a downward trend in the natural rate of interest. However, in that 700-year span, we actually go through substantial periods as long as 15 years where you have deviations from trend. 15-year deviations from trend or a long time. And basically, Ken is making the argument, Professor Ken is making the argument that, hey, keep in mind, it is possible for rates to stay a lot higher for a lot longer than anybody expects. We could be in a higher rate regime for five years, potentially. Changes everything. We don't necessarily have to go back to zero in 2024. <laughs> so interesting argument. And there's also, the, of course, the potential that, well, there are really 
three outcomes, and any of these is possible at this point. Look, sure, we can have orderly disinflation, and basically inflation goes down towards 2%. You don't cause substantial damage to jobs and growth, and things are better. Or you have sticky inflation. Inflation falls to like 3 or 4%, but then you get stuck. Then you kind of hope that the Federal Reserve pulls up fate out of the bag, which they've been kind of refusing to mention because I think it's a tool on their tool belt that they're not telling the mainstream media and the world about, but I've been yelling about for the past six months, like it's going to come. They're going to pull that genie out of the bottle. Uh, or you can have U, a U-shape of inflation where basically these higher yields do exactly what the cocaine bear says, and you end up seeing a second wave of inflation, right? Higher rates with higher inflation. It's all possible. It's all very bearish. Now, personally, I think this bearish positioning that we're seeing getting priced into the market right now that actually is barely moving the indices, as I mentioned, the S&P 500 not that far down, down 2.5%, simply by removing rate cuts in 2023, that's a nominal move to the downside for what seems to be a lot of bearish positioning. And this is just my opinion, but I think there's a chance... We have a lot of bearishness today and Monday going into the CPI print. And if we get a, a good CPI print, you could end up seeing another rally to the upside. Now, another another large leg to the upside. I don't even think that a big miss on CPI would bring us back to a new low, like October or below. I don't think most individual investors or institutional investors actually think we're going to break a new low I do think it makes sense to bet uh, or hedge for the potential another leg down, but you do have people like Mike Wilson who are like, oh, no, 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 the real big leg down is still coming. Look at my charts, which obviously I've dismantled one of the charts, uh, one of his primary charts, but hey, you know what? That doesn't mean I'm going to be right. I just want to share the perspective. Again, write these numbers down. CPI month over month projection, 0.5. That's way higher than the negative 0.1 that we had last month. That's a problem. That's headline inflation went up, right? Headline inflation, that's led by energy. It's really led by energy. But you also have core. Ooh, they just revised core. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, they uh, The survey for core is now 0.3. That is in line with the 0.3 previously. That is a revision down from yesterday, which actually suggested core would be 0.4 on a month-over-month -month basis. CPI headline 6.2 estimate and CPI core estimate of 5.4 interesting. We will see. Obviously, we'll see. But uh, anyway, uh, let's. Uh, I want to see what some of y'all are saying here. Are cuts not a bad thing? Usually the economy crashes after the Fed pivots. God damn it. <laughs> Anybody who watches <laughs> my videos is like, oh no, here we go again. <laughs> Dude, foodle, fuddle, man. You might be new around here. I appreciate you being a member, but I think I have made like 17 videos talking about how the Fed pivot and the market crashing after the Fed pivot is straight bullshit. I'm going to just simplify like my, I mean, and you can just type this into YouTube and get my details on it. But literally yesterday morning, I talked about it. The day before in the morning, I talked about it. And you can just type into YouTube, meet Kevin Fed pivot, and you'll see me dismantle this. But let me just try to sum it up. In, in, in 30 seconds, <laughs> yeah, people are Charlie's like, Foodle has to be trolling. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm getting trolled here. But, but let me just try to sum it up in like 15 seconds, okay? The Fed will only pivot down in this recession when inflation is convincingly falling. 
Inflation is the only reason we are going into a recession. If the Fed pivots, it means inflation is getting conquered, which means the problems are going away, which means we go up, not down. And, and, and watch my other videos for, for why the Fed pivot is just nonsense. Oh, God. <laughs> Jeez, Lord. Hey, Kevin, how can I send you a gift? 9452 Telephone Road, Ventura, California, 93004. Ay, ay, ay. Fed made it clear that they need to tackle inflation. Otherwise, people will lose faith. I'd say higher for longer. Exactly. But the higher for longer argument actually reiterates why when the Fed actually does pivot, it's actually a good thing, right? Also, tell us where you got that jacket. This jacket was a gift from my father. It is a Robert Graham jacket. You know, Robert Graham usually puts like a, a number on each of them. Of, of how, like, all of the products he makes are numbered. And, uh, yeah, it's a really cool jacket, but, but they, they, they have, like, a, a, how many they've made or whatever. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, this is probably, this is one of my favorites. Because it makes it look like you're wearing a double jacket, but it's, it's clickbait. <laughs> it's the best. Uh, nobody knows clickbait better than I do. <laughs> anyway. Uh, what are we going to title this video? Something about, um, prepare for the market crash? I don't know. I actually, I think the stuff is a really good video. I mean, I, I think the content's really good. Uh, but, uh, some people just read the titles and, and they don't actually watch the video. And, and for those people, sucks for you! <sighs> if only I had a dollar for every time Kevin has said Fed Pivot in the last two months I could retire. <laughs> UTWO is a cash position. If you ever see UTWO in an ETF, it's, it's cash. It's basically a cash position. It's, it's not a bet on anything other than just holding cash. Oh, good lordy, lordy, lordy. 10-year treasury hits highest level since Jan 6th. Womp, womp, womp. Ooh, oh, this is a good piece. Oh, 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 this is fantastic. We got to cover this, but... I'm going to die if I don't go uh, do something really quick. So I'm going to be right back. Give me like a minute. Okay, here, we're going to listen to this talk about 10-year treasury yields. Alphabet relative to meta. This goes back to the end of 2019, so essentially right before the pandemic. And boy, they were treated as basically the same stock on the way up, right? Tremendous amount of perceived stability here. The platforms just kicked off profit, the whole thing. And then first you had Meta falter with subgrowth and then the massive spending on Metaverse that was completely rejected by the street. So they took their medicine and now you see this faltering and that looks like a pretty big top in Alphabet as people question the business model of search uh, in the kind of AI world. What's interesting is both of these stocks are now at precisely the same valuation. If you look at a forward PE, it's like 18 times, just slightly above 18 times, essentially where the S&P 500 is. So the market implicitly saying these are just average companies right now, how we're valuing them right now. If you think they're better than average, that's an opportunity. If you feel like they actually uh, are going to have to step down their, their profitability versus what history has given you, then maybe that is, uh, that's a, a reason to lighten up on them further back. Yeah, and, and Mike, I have to say, just this whole risk on, risk off, the idea that growth stocks, all of these companies are going to be under more potential pressure because of what Jay Powell and company might decide to do. I mean, that just seems like we turned the calendar. Everybody thought, okay, everything we were worried about last year just went away. Stocks soared, and now all of a sudden people are rethinking that since, since the jobs number last Friday. 
Sure. Yeah, I mean, she's she's actually right on. That's uh, that is basically exactly what it feels like. It's like everybody was so happy come January, and then all of a sudden the jobs report comes out, and everybody's like, "Oh my gosh, it's the end of the world! People are getting jobs! People are getting jobs! How dare people get jobs? My lord, the economy's gonna crash and go to hell!" It's time we talk about the reality of the jobs market. You want to see reality in jobs? I'll show you reality in jobs. We've got two massive pieces that we got to talk about right now. Number one is what's actually happening in jobs in multiple different sources. But we're going to look at the Wall Street Journal and a massive piece on jobs that just came out. Then we're going to look at what a particular company just told us in earnings. And boy, it should give you a really big heads up. And no, it's not Starbucks or Chipotle because I've mentioned them like a million times already. It's another company. And it's a big one that's given us a lot of insight into what's going on in the jobs market. And I love it. But before we talk about that, I have to mention Nikki Leaks. Yeah. What'd you think? Coupon code? <laughs> Nikki Leaks over here says the following. The popular belief that energy prices have been driving U.S. inflation is not supported by data. There's strong evidence that rising prices were not the main determinant in the surge of U.S. consumer prices of inflation in 2021 and 2022. Now, the reason we like Nikki T, and even though we're going to talk about jobs in just a moment, it's worth noting that anytime Nikki T shares something, we actually think that the likelihood is Nikki T is in direct contact with the Federal Reserve, and anything he shares is something to pay attention to. But generally what happens when we get information like this is energy shocks basically just flow through uh, other product costs. But the problem is other product costs are limited by what people are able to pay. So if you go to the conclusion of what Nikki T just shared, it says, our evidence suggests that an unexpected increase in the level of energy prices by itself does not create persistent inflation. It only creates a blip in the inflation rate. In other words, inflationary pressures in monthly data wane as soon as pro positive gasoline price shocks cease. Now, what's fascinating about this? Well, you came here to learn about jobs, but what's fascinating about this is obviously you care about inflation. What's fascinating about this is guess what we expect on Valentine's Day in just four days? We expect a sudden acceleration in the month-over-month -month data. Look at this, folks. Via the Fed's mouthpiece, the Fed is already casting dovish doubt on the CPI report for Tuesday. That's very interesting, the timing of such. But let's now look at what the Wall Street Journal has to say about the hiring boom. As usual, I've gone through and highlighted the particular report to make it as simple and easy as possible for us to get through it. First, it's really important to remember something that I actually tweeted yesterday, uh, and, and, and it helps us kind of set the standard for this article that we're going to go through. But yesterday, I tweeted uh, the following. Oh, did I say that? Uh, I tweeted, uh, forgive me, I'm, uh, okay, I'll, 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 I'm not going to read that part. Uh, but anyway, I asked, if the average hourly wage of workers is $32 per the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and higher paying white collar jobs are being laid off, while lower paid jobs are being added in that $14 to $18 per hour range, wouldn't the average wage fall? That is, wouldn't wage growth while adding jobs actually decline? And 
the response, I, in other words, I put the little rocket ship over here, and uh, Chamath's burner phone says, yes, the reverse happened at the beginning of the pandemic when average wages went up because low wage workers were let go and higher wage workers were basically being hired uh, for, for stay at home work. And that's really interesting because just that alone suggests to us that even though we could have a hiring boom, even though we could end up getting an unemployment or an employment report, I should say, that ends up showing 500,000 jobs created. What if those jobs are all low paying and they actually lower your average? That would actually show wage disinflation in aggregate. And it actually suggests that if the people who are being hired are lower paid workers, then we might actually be thankful that the job numbers are going up. Now, this is this is a mind def, okay? L l think about the mind def that I just set up here, okay? Markets right now are like, oh my God, the jobs market is so strong. The Fed, the, the Fed's gonna keep rates higher for longer. That's your consensus right now. But wait a minute. If those jobs are disinflationary jobs, and it means we're potentially not going into a recession, these jobs are the most bullish thing ever. Contrarian viewpoint, interesting idea, but Nikki T is already throwing shade on that V-Day report. I, 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 look, we're going to go through this Wall Street Journal report. Nikki T obviously works for WSJ, but all I got to say is you're here for perspective. I thank you and you should subscribe. Hopefully you enjoy the content and you share it with your friends and your loved ones and anybody who wants to watch. Anyway, so what do we have here? Driving the jobs boom are, but often overlooked sections of the economy. Oh my gosh, like I feel like I'm writing an essay in college. Driving the jobs boom are, but often overlooked sectors of the economy. Restaurants, hospitals, nursing homes, and child cares are finally staffing up as they enter the last stage of the pandemic recovery. These jobs are more than offsetting cuts by huge employers such as Amazon and Microsoft. And this is actually true. I mean, it, 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 they, and they reiterated here. Um, you have a lot of tech layoffs happening in tech, but tech only makes up 2% of the private job sector. Instead, services like healthcare, education, leisure, leisure hospitality, and other services like dry cleaning and automotive repair account for 36% of all jobs. The service industry all together, uh, let's see here, such as dry cleaning, that's 36, these listed right here, just those listed are 36%. All service jobs account for 63% of jobs. This is that last stage of disinflation that Jerome Powell is looking for, right? Wages coming down, this sector. So what are we seeing according to the Wall Street Journal in this particular sector? Well, here's what we're starting to see. Elliot McDonald, the director of operations for Lane's Chicken Fingers in Texas, says that the company used to get one job application every two weeks for the last two years. Recently, uh, and, and that had actually led him to have staffing shortages, and he had to go work the drive through Oh no, imagine that, a boss having to work because there are no employees. That happens all the time. Anyway, now, he says, more job candidates are starting to apply. The company's average hourly wages have risen to $15 from $11 two years ago, but now they're fully staffed and they're no, and he's no longer having to go work on the line. Now, initially we might think, oh my God, but Kevin, 
average wages going from $11 to 15 is bad, right? Well, sure, it's bad for an inflationary point of view, but it's great for the workers. This is actually fantastic for preventing a recession, right? Because people are getting paid more money, but it also incentivizes people to work in these jobs. And $15 an hour brings down the overall average of earnings, which is disinflationary. But not only does that happen, the increase from 11 to $15 is generally represented in 2022 data. We are going to start lapping that data in 2023, which means we wouldn't see the increases again potentially this year. Another thing that's bullish. What else do we see? Goldman Sachs is reducing their estimates of a recession from 35% to 25% because of the potential for a soft landing. We think that the process of reducing inflation will take, a t uh, take some time. Uh, and even though we expected payrolls to decline by 7,000 jobs a month, we're not actually seeing payrolls decline. Why? Because lower paying service jobs are actually advancing the sector and more people are getting hired. Now, what's interesting here is listen to this. We've talked about Chipotle a million times before, but Chipotle is now above pre-pandemic staffing levels. They're hiring like crazy for burrito season, and they're not having trouble finding employees anymore. Walmart, we know, raged, raised, raised wages, uh, and nursing homes have also had to raise pay. But again, a lot of that was experienced in 2022, and it drags the average down. But what are we seeing? Nursing shortages, mostly gone now easier opportunity to fill jobs. It's easier to find people to work in these sectors now. Now, look at this. See, we had significant shortages of staff, in particular registered nurses, radiology technicians, and many other clinical patient-facing roles. But fortunately, it's gotten better. The company's relying less on temporary hiring. There aren't $10,000 signing bonuses anymore for emergency room nurses. Nursing homes might not return to pre-pandemic -stat, pre staffing levels until 2027, which is kind of bad because it shows that this is still a process, like things are getting better, but still it's a process. But you're seeing a lot of information in this article about how all of a sudden managers at restaurants, sous chefs, uh, chefs in general, whatever, they're actually applying for jobs again without signing bonuses. And companies are seeing a lot of this shift within just the last three months. In other words, a lot more people coming out to actually work right now. Now, what's really incredible about this is I aligned this idea that, okay, people are coming back to work. Let's think about that for a moment. If people are coming back to work, that could be because inflation is forcing them to come back to work because what? Well, costs are higher, right? Well, where's a place that people can go work and potentially make side hustle money to help them with inflationary costs? But in the process of them contributing their labor, they're actually bringing prices down. Think about that for a moment. Like, seriously, think about yourself. Think about that for a moment. If you right now needed some extra side hustle money on the weekend, what could you do? I don't personally recommend doing this because I don't think it boosts your resume at all. I don't think it's a good idea, but what, what do most people do? Maybe not most people, but what do a lot of people do on the weekends or at nights or, or when they have spare time to make extra money? And when they go provide that service, when they provide that labor, right? Because their labor is a service. When they provide their service, it actually drives the price of that service down. 
Well, folks, it's none other than Lyft. Lyft. What are we seeing at Lyft? Lyft is talking about healthy rider demand, but our driver supply position has significantly improved. In other words, in English, we are losing pee-pee over here at Lyft because so many freaking drivers are coming out of the woodwork to work for Lyft that prices are plummeting at Lyft. We have so many more drivers than we've ever had before. Now all of a sudden we have so much supply of drivers and not more demand to offset all of that. What are we seeing? We're seeing pricing plummet. Okay, you don't actually have to go through the earnings call to see this reiterated. All you have to do is look at their stock today, which usually is not the best tell, but today it is. The stock's down 31% in pre-market. Why? Because their margins are getting hosed. Why are their margins getting hosed? Well, listen to the co-founder. So the supply side has come back in a very meaningful way. We talked about that already on the call. Uh, some top metrics on the supply side in nearly three years. So in other words, the most supply of drivers in only three, in, in, in the last three years. And what do we have over here? With this extreme improvement of supply, you have less prime time, so therefore lower prices. Holy smokes. Think about this, folks. The actual data. Not the bears on Wall Street who are saying everything's going to hell. The actual data, whether it's the Atlanta wage tracker that's showing wages trending down. I'll pull that one up so you can actually see it graphically. Whether it's the Atlanta wage traffic, uh, Adl Atlanta wage uh, tracker, whether it's the Atlanta wage tracker going down, or it's the employment cost index report showing that wages are growing at a slower rate or it here's the wage tracker by the way from atlanta you could see the wage tracker is finally inflecting down it's still growing but it's finally inflecting down so the wage tracker is inflecting down healthcare is finding it easier to hire per the wall street journal restaurants are finding it easier to hire per the wall street journal you're not seeing uh, signing bonuses anymore chipotle is finding it easier to hire starbucks is finding it easier to hire i've mentioned those two companies like 17 times and i feel bad for reiterating it again but it's important because put all the pieces of the puzzle together what's happening folks lyft is complaining about the most workers ever in the last three years and they're talking about coming off extremely tight labor markets. And now all of a sudden, listen to this. Listen, listen to, I'm going to read you this line. I'm going to translate it to you. I think the great thing for the business is we've been coming off an extremely tight labor market, still tracking the unemployment numbers. However, this, this basically massive increase of people who all of a sudden just started coming to work for Lyft, that data, quote, is not showing up in the public numbers yet but we've seen real softening in Q1. So in other words, I'm just going to translate this because I'm speeding up and you can look on screen and read it yourself. Go read the earnings call yourself. Uh, it, it's very obvious. A massive plummet in, in, uh, in, in pressures on drivers are leading prices to plummet. Prices are falling. They're not going up because there's so much of a supply now of the taxi service because people want the extra money. But Lyft is literally telling you, this is such an extreme change. We want to let the world know about this extreme change we're seeing. And it's not showing up in the data yet. You're not actually going to see this crazy data yet. Uh, notable changes in the reacceleration of driver supply. Again, that lowers peak prices. 
Now they did give us a little bit of a red flag that insurance prices popped up, which isn't good because that also hurts margins. So you do have some elements of those little embers, I call them, of, of inflation, right? But again, put the pieces of the puzzle together. Chipotle. Let's let's write it, let's write, write it down for a moment, okay? Because I think it's so important. Probably by far one of the most important thing uh, uh, things to think about right now. If you're wondering, should you be bullish or bearish? Is wage growth. And what do you have in terms of wage growth? Well, first of all, you have lower wage workers gaining jobs, right? Higher paid workers losing jobs. What does that do? It lowers the average pay, right? You have the Atlanta tracker, wage tracker, showing disinflation for wages. You have Chipotle talking about how much easier it is. You have this massive Wall Street Journal piece on healthcare and restaurants talking about how it's easier to hire. You have Starbucks talking about how it's easier to hire. You have Lyft basically saying, yeah, we suck at Lyft because we can't charge high prices anymore because there is no peak pricing anymore because we have an extreme shift in labor availability. The supply of labor has just exploded, okay? So you have this insane, like, mainstream media narrative that, oh my God, the jobs report is so terrible because lots of people got jobs. The Fed's gonna kill us. Ah. Meanwhile, what you actually have is what is Jerome Powell actually saying? Jay Powell's like, this is great. People are getting jobs and inflation is going down. <laughs> like, he's not wrong. This is good. So, anybody you hear that's bitching about jobs uh, ruining the, the stock market in the future, in my opinion, it's not what we're seeing. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not to say that every company in the S&P 500 is going to boom. In fact, consumers are under a lot of stress right now. That indicates potentially lower EPS. But this portion, this talk is about jobs. It's not about the consumer. We'll talk about the consumers a different time. But if we're just looking at jobs, and what the jobs market is telling us is bullish, bullish, bullish. That's what that's telling us. Again, I'm not saying companies aren't going to miss on earnings. There is a reason I have a very large exposure to semiconductor stocks, pricing power stocks, and companies like Tesla, because I believe these companies are going to grow EPS substantially, stay away from the memory chip companies. But these companies are, in my opinion, expected to grow EPS substantially, Whereas your consumer, your more consumer discretionary stocks, consumers are getting hit, okay? But again, when it comes to wages, this is fantastic information and fantastic news. That's my take. You heard it here. I don't know who else is talking about this, but I wouldn't be surprised if after now we make this video because this is always what happens. People watch my videos and then they go make their own videos using my data. It's okay. It's an honor. But it's also sometimes a little frustrating. But that's okay, because nobody else does research. Anyway, let's move on. So, what else do we have to talk about? We now have to talk about, I don't know, S&P 500 on track to snap a two-week win streak. That's boring. That's no fun. Uh, let's see what we have here. Let's listen to CBC for a moment. And I have actually a clip that I want to play here shortly. Let's see here. Average 
Uh, and also, we had the AAII poll come out saying that bullish sentiment was at or above its historical average for the first time in 58 weeks. So I think we basically got ahead of ourselves. Digestion is likely to continue a bit. This is this is literally what they're all saying. All of the institutions right now. The institutions are the ones who are being so freaking bearish right now. Uh, it's incredible. Like retail optimism is actually a lot higher than than what these institutions are saying. I, I find that actually quite interesting. Uh, but let me see if I can get to a recording here of a clip. I might have to do it later, but I'm going to try to do it anyway uh, because I think it's is, it was a very very good clip. And let's see here. I haven't recorded for the finder. All right, let me answer a few questions. PayPal earnings. Uh, Darby says, I'm such an influencer. How dare I influence you? That is not the purpose. Uh, okay, I don't think I know how to do this. There's a stoop. There's a. Okay, I'm going to give a shout out here really quick. Generally, this is pretty good. Uh, although, even though I'm having problems right now. Uh, oh, my library. I found it. The AT&T uh, direct TV combo or whatever has been phenomenal. Like, it's really good. Uh, it takes me a little while to get used to their software. Uh, but you could basically have, and I'm not sponsored by them or anything, but they have unlimited DVR. And it's really cool that they have that. Uh, so I'm really fascinated by it. Uh, and, and I think it's really awesome. But... Um, I'll, I'll pull this up later. Uh, oh, I, have, I actually have two AT&T DVRs. That's why. It's on my other account. Dang it. Okay, I, I should have known that. But um, so I, I have one for the office and one here. Uh, and so anyway, I recorded this this uh, video that I thought was really, really good, and I want to play it, but I'll have to do that later. Or, or we'll do it tomorrow morning. It's not, like, super urgent. But, uh, boy, I have to say, really impressive uh, compared to Spectrum. I mean, Spectrum just, like, trash compared to this. Really, really good. Anyway. We'll cover that one later. All right. So what's going on in the pre-market over here? So uh, we have, let's see, we have uh, Dow's down 0.28, S&P down 0.39, NASDAQ down 0.63, 10 years unchanged at 3.68. Uh, let me take a quick peek at the five-year break. We know we've got Catalyst coming out in an hour from the University of Michigan. You've got the five-year break even. Uh, and the five-year break even. We know the terminal rate has moved up to 5.33 of market expectations. Ooh, another tick up on the five-year break even, 2.51. Not so great on those inflation expectations ticking up. So not not super happy and excited about that. But uh, it's something we're seeing. And then we also know, ooh, yeah, this was an interesting uh, point here. You've got... Uh, Republican donors potentially trying to choke off Donald Trump from a fundraising uh, attempt. Now, this was fascinating. I don't know if it's true, but apparently two massive donor groups uh, led by the Koch, uh, Koch, I mean, that's what their last name is, Koch brothers, uh, are, are, are looking at basically other nominees and, and their influence has actually potentially led other major GOP donors to start looking at other potential candidates. Here's the chart that someone sent me, and it shows the following. Big donors back away. Major GOP givers in the 2020 race won't back Trump or will sit out uh, the primary. Uh, Sheldon Ad Adelson's wife, 
They donated 200 uh, together. Uh, he passed away. Uh, they donated 218 million dollars in the 2020 elections. You've got Kenny G. Uh, is it Coke? Uh, no, I, I, who, who, whatever. Uh, Mr. Griffin over here, K O K O C H, whatever. Anyway, you got Kenny G over here donated $67 million. And you've got these other various uh, individuals who've donated money to Trump who are all suggesting they're going to sit out the 2020 race. Kenny G actually went as far as calling Donald Trump a three-time loser. Uh, now, so that's, that's pretty harsh, but it's quite interesting because it suggests that Donald Trump might be running out of the big old donation money that he had in in the previous cycle. And some are suggesting that's going to end up leading him to hit a wall uh, in terms of um, uh, his, his campaign efforts as potentially Ron DeSantis rises up. Uh, this is something where you could actually potentially start seeing that nervousness come from Donald Trump, particularly because you've got uh, Donald Trump amplifying attacks on Ron DeSantis, leading a lot of people to say, mm-hmm. Of course you're attacking him more because you're scared of him. It's interesting. See what happens. Mm -hmm. Someone here in the comments saying he is still around. Ouch. John Christ, 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 whatever, says Trump is done. Steve says, does he need the money? Biden is doing a great job of advertising for Trump by the horrible job he is doing at running America. Steve, let us know how you really feel. Uh, Jermaine Trombone on Facebook says, sadly, Kevin is a government shill. Damn it, I've been exposed. Limitless says, damned to irrelevancy for Donald Trump. DeSantis says, or, uh, sorry, JG says, DeSantis will become president. Nobody cares about Trump anymore. Uncle Jesse says, when moon. Hector Salas says, who would pick Big Dick DeSantis or Mob Boss Trump? Is that supposed to be an insult at DeSantis? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, this is entertaining. Kevin, have you ever checked your IQ? 69, baby. <laughs> uh, a large 69. <laughs> All right, we got to talk about the consumer. I promised you to talk about the consumer, so we got to talk about the consumer. <sighs> the consumer is going to hell. Now, how do we stack this up with the potential for massive disinflation, the lack of PP, the lack of pricing power, consumers rushing back to get jobs, whether it's at Lyft, at Chipotle, or Starbucks, and yeah, I'm hoping you leave a comment correcting my pronunciation because we up the engagement anytime we talk about PP. But we've got to talk about the reality, which is a massive problem facing the consumer and what could potentially drag S&P 500 earnings down in the toilet with it. And that, after all, is the second phase of a recession. First, you get multiple compression, then you get... EPS fall. Earnings per share falling happens when the consumer spends less money. And what did we just find out from the consumer? Well, total credit increased 11.6 uh, sorry, 11.6 billion dollars in January from the prior month. This is the smallest increase in 2 years, well below estimates, 
And it goes to show that even though in prior months consumers have been supporting their spending with credit cards, we have had a massive decline of spending in January. It's almost like in January, consumers finally have hit a wall. That potentially consumers have been supporting their lifestyle, much like American Express warns that the high income consumers are supporting their lifestyles through this recession by spending more on credit cards and taking out more small business loans. We are seeing what? More spending going through December, but what's happening in January? Oh, Consumers potentially finally hitting the wall as they have maxed out their ability to borrow on either credit cards or buy now, pay later. Now, PayPal is bragging about buy now, pay later rising in the fourth quarter, but the forecasts a little bit more murky. But where we could really see where the forecasts are murky are at Affirm. Consider, folks, that Affirm is a company that bragged for months that they would do well in a recession. Affirm is a company that I have since the day I first looked at Affirm said, do not touch Affirm with a 10-foot pole if you go into a recession. I've said that a million times and I will stand by it. Affirm has unfortunately changed their tune on the consumer though. Not only are they now talking about economic uncertainty and no longer talking about how great it is that Affirm offers buy now, pay later services in a recession, but all of a sudden, when we actually look at their earnings, we see a giant L. It is a bad L. Now, we talked about some of this in the course member live stream yesterday because that's what we do. We talk fundamentals and business and Q&A in our course member live streams. Every day the market is open. Link down below for those. But what did we learn from a firm? We learned that their revenue increased 10.6%. But while their revenue increased 10.6%, their gross payment volume increased 27%. What does that tell us? It tells us they have a lack of pricing power. Now, part of that lack of pricing power could be because Amazon now represents 20% of a firm's sales. And we've all been worried that Amazon would end up compressing a firm's margins, basically making a firm take all the risk without actually getting a lot of the dough, a lot of the profit. And that appears to be exactly what's happening. Even though gross payments are up 27%, revenue for a firm is only up 10%. That's bad. That means a third of their increase in payment volume went to revenue, which means they're basically having to discount how much they're able to charge to make these loans to convince people to actually make them. That is a lack of PP. In addition to having a lack of PP, they are now having gross PP and dirty PP because they have increased their allowance for credit losses twofold. So in other words, their revenue went up 10% and their credit losses doubled. Think about that for a moment. Revenue up 10%, loss projections doubling. That's what happens in a recession. You have the riskiest form of lending. Why would you touch a firm with a 10-foot pole? I don't know. Maybe to speculate in the short term that rising tides lift all ships. And sure, the the ship of, uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, like the ark that carries all the animals, right? Even unprofitable companies can lift up as the sea goes up. But that doesn't make it a quality ship. Anyway, this was a big red flag. And then their earnings call, they actually reiterated that they are lacking pricing power. They are vacating a portion of their San Francisco office. They're letting 19% of their staff go. And what else are you seeing? Well, you're not just seeing weakness at a firm. 
Dell is laying off 5% of its workforce, lowest headcount in six years, as they continue to, quote, experience market conditions that erode with an uncertain future. And 55% of Dell's revenue comes from PCs, and we all know the PC market has been getting whacked. This comes at the same time as we know that 64% of individuals are living paycheck to paycheck. And now we've had a 9 percentage point increase in those making over $100,000 living paycheck to paycheck. Yes, even people making over six figures are living paycheck to paycheck much more today than last year. Appliance demand is weakening even more substantially and is expected to weaken through 2025 which is absolutely insane, and this increases fears that maybe maybe we will end up hitting a recessionary environment. You're also seeing a massive inventory overhang. Under Armour is cutting prices like crazy to get their goods sold, which is actually putting pressures on companies like Lululemon, who basically lost their PP. Lululemon bragged that one of the reasons they didn't have to cut prices was because they didn't raise prices as much as the competitors, which is insane because that's your first red flag that they don't have PP anymore, pricing power, right? They didn't raise prices like the competitors did. But then guess what's happening now? Now, even though Lulu, the competitors raised prices and Lulu didn't raise prices, and Lulu's like, see, we won't have to cut prices because we didn't raise prices. Everybody else is cutting prices. Under Armour is slashing prices. What's happening at Lulu now? Oh no, Lulu is also discounting. Oh dear Lord. And they're discounting from a lower base. Consumers have hit a wall, and this is bad news. This is exactly why we are seeing a slowdown uh, in spend. Look at, for example, Newell Brands. Newell Brands just reported. Newell Brands, you don't have to even look at the report to know how they did because you could just look at their stock. Their stock in pre-market is down 6% at the time of this recording. After they reported, they actually fell as much as 12% instantly because their forecast was so bad on the consumer. Newell Brands is a company that makes company or that that owns brands like Rubbermaid or Crock-Pot. I mean, they got a ton of goods for babies and household goods and that. And you're seeing a massive slowdown, not only because of an inventory buildup. I mean, even Energizer Batteries was complaining that companies like Target and Walmart aren't buying as many new batteries because they're looking at all the shelves and trying to find where all the batteries are. And instead of having batteries on every damn aisle at Target and Walmart, they're starting to take the batteries and consolidate them to fewer places because they're just running through their inventory. They don't want to spend the money. They don't want to burn the cash on getting more inventory. You are also seeing a slowdown in warehouse construction because people are buying less junk and you have an inventory pileup not at warehouses, which is in transit goods, but instead at actual stores. Amazon is now reportedly subleasing some of its warehouse space because of a slowdown in logistics and ordering. E-commerce software provider Inventory Planner says 50% of survey respondents from their survey are having trouble getting inventory even after post-Christmas and January discounting. 60% of companies that uh, were surveyed by inventory planners say they are worried they need to liquidate excess stock, which means prices go down. Folks, if you watch my channel, I don't know how, how you could possibly make the argument that inflation is still going up, okay? Like, we've talked about wages on the path to plummeting. We've talked about goods and services on the path to plummeting. Yes, there are embers, 
but show me prices actually still going up somewhere other than lagging data. It's so freaking obvious, but, but whatever. I'll just keep pounding the table and, and, and people can do whatever they want. Anyway, baby and toddler retail sector. Most impacted by excess inventory with 92% of respondents complaining about baby and toddler uh, inventory. 55% complaining that luxury is getting hit. That's bad for Williams-Sonoma. 50% complaining that homeware and gardening is doing poorly. That's what we just saw with Newell Brands. 44% complaining about retail. And retailers are now having trouble projecting their required inventory because there's so much liquidating and so many price cuts going on that they're freaking out and they don't even know what the hell to do. Part of this could be because you're seeing people run out of money. And you see less borrowing, which is exactly what we've seen. You're also seeing substantially more price competition, right? Consider again, lower prices at Lyft, lower prices at a firm. What's happening at Disney? Disney, every quarter, bragged, bragged about how per capita spend at the parks and cruise lines was going up. And they would give you a percentage. They would say, oh, it's up 50%. Oh, it's up 40%. They always gave you a percentage. This time... Yeah, it went up. Yeah, probably because it only went up a few percentage points. You didn't actually give us the data point anymore. And in my opinion, when you read earnings calls, because this is what I do all day long, I think that's why you come here to get a consolidated set of all the information. I read the earnings calls and I'm like, hmm, the stuff you're not saying anymore is generally a red flag. This is exactly what we've seen at many other companies before. Google is seeing their PP for ads fall. Almost every single advertising sector is seeing ads fall. Yahoo is laying off 50% of their ad business staff because the ad business is turning to crap. Amazon AWS complaining about falling pee-pee. Unilever can't keep up with all of the increasing uh, costs that they've had over the past year for commodities and other things that have sort of already been baked into inflation reports, but they can't raise prices anymore because people ain't buying anymore. The same exact thing is what we're seeing at companies across the United States. Look at Mattel down 12% on worse than expected toy sales, massive slowdown in toy sales. Even Enphase is going from massive quarter over quarter growth to potentially contraction in spending. That's why they got hit. Uber gave you the warning about Lyft. You have 34% more drivers at Uber. That's because people are going to work because they're out of freaking money. Now, Simon Property Group also complains about the same thing. Even though they're seeing positive rent spreads and renewals, they're seeing a lot of their customers complain about a softening economy and lower revenues. Now, keep in mind that when consumers spend less money, Simon Property Group makes less money because Simon Property Group actually takes a royalty fee off of the earnings of companies in their malls. That's a way of them basically incentivize, being incentivized to actually keep the malls looking nice. Because if they don't keep the malls looking nice, then what happens? Well, then people don't come. And if people don't come, then the revenues in stores go down. So you kind of sort of like align incentives that way, right? But it's not just that. It's also that we are seeing a reduction in people's pent up savings. And that's another potential issue. Now, JP Morgan thinks people aren't actually going to go through their uh, post-pandemic savings until probably the second half of the year. But you're actually seeing a more of a burn through, I think, than JP Morgan is projecting. 
uh, happening based on articles like this. This is the Wall Street Journal. Households burned through pandemic savings. The cushions of savings many built up during the pandemic is thinning out. Americans have spent down about 35% of the excess savings they've accumulated as of mid-January, according to Goldman Sachs. By the end of this year, so they kind of align actually here with JPM, by the end of the year, forecasts estimate that pandemic savings will be roughly 65% gone. Today, some people are having to cut back on their spending or add to credit card balances, except we've already added so much to credit card balances at the end of last year that now even you're seeing credit card balances go down. The government's pause on student loan payments helps a little bit, but the point is, what are you seeing? You're seeing scaled back household spending. People are dining out less often. Actually, uh, Chipotle having like this is a little weird because it seems contradictory, but it basically aligns. When people dine out less often, they spend less money on food. Obviously, dining out is very expensive. But in addition to that, listen to this. Chipotle actually sees that wealthier people are coming in store more because they are downgrading from restaurants or from ordering at home. So they eat the crap they have at home because it's cheaper. The delivery fees are expensive, so they go into Chipotle, or they don't. They go, they don't go to a restaurant, and they go to like a Chipotle, which obviously a fourteen dollar burrito is less expensive than a twenty five dollar miso salmon at uh, at the Cheesecake Factory, uh, and uh, Chipotle can still sell you beer. So if you're into that, uh, you can still go to Chipotle. Just make sure you wait at least twenty four hours after having a beer uh, before you drive, because obviously nobody in their right mind would ever have a single sip of alcohol. Uh, and then drive. That's very bad. Never, ever drink and uh, then drive. Very bad. Anyway, so uh, look, the, the numbers here are very, very convincing. It's very obvious that people's disposable income is evaporating. It's very obvious that consumer spending is plummeting. But the decline of consumer spending leads to the decline of PP and many companies. And so your goal, in my opinion, as an investor is trying to figure out where do you invest? Do you just stay in cash? Where do you invest? In my opinion, you look for PP, massive PP, massive pricing power stocks. And in my opinion, where those pricing power stocks are is very simple. They're companies that can demand a high margin, margin, that's important. Not necessarily saying prices don't come down, but they can demand a high margin even in the face of a recession. Those are companies you want to look for. Personally, I think that's mostly in the chip sector away from memory. So you have to get away from memory and then look at the chip sector. Advanced microchips, 3 nanometers, 4 nanometers, 5 nanometers. Advanced chip makers, chip equipment manufacturers. Yes, Tesla's in there as well as a chip and robotics manufacturer, but also a company that has substantial margins in the auto industry. Apple has preservation of substantial margins, even though they too are starting to cut the price of iPhones in China because there's even a lack of PP in China. So folks, these are things to pay attention to. But in my opinion, you've got lots of deflation coming. This is not going to be a, a disinflation story in a few years anymore. I think you've got massive disinflation coming. At least that's what the data is saying now. Is it possible data starts coming in bad and maybe one day I'll actually wake up and read a single earnings call this quarter that says prices are going up, which I have not yet seen? Oh, damn. Then I'll tell you about it. But that's where I'm sitting right now.
I think the consumer is screwed. And because the consumer is mostly screwed, prices gonna come down. Simple. Now, go to Doomberg. Uh, for inflation over the, the next yeah. uh, year to uh, two years, and, and mm. that is good news for the yeah. Fed. Uh, at least I can report that tuition CPI is anchored, is as they say. Is it? They're putting they're putting a chain around men and women's <laughs> legs. <laughs> they're anchoring the them. Anchor they're anchoring their financial situation. Do I care, <clears throat> Mike, too much about used car prices and car prices in general? Because I've been tracking that so closely, and maybe that's just, you know, Well, you're Well, you're, you're more fun at parties than other people. But, uh, <laughs> why are you looking at me? <laughs> to, to know why. Okay, now, aside from their bantering nonsense here, it, it, it is uh, true. Used car prices have ticked up in the last two months. Now, some people say that's because of anticipation of tax refunds and that people need a new car because it's been years since they got an, uh, you know, a new car to them, not necessarily a brand new car. But uh, it's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, it is very interesting. The used car one is is a little bit of a red flag. That is true. I don't know if it's an ember or a red flag, but we want to pay attention to it. A little bit in the, in the most and recent everyone month. Everyone would be interested. And, they would say. and inflation nerds are, are worried about this. <laughs> well, that's my whole point, is that actually they were falling for a long time, uh, for a couple of months, and people were saying, okay, this is the big disinflationary push. And now they're going back up because there isn't the same supply yeah. left over from uh, the pandemic era and the lack thereof of you know people who are buying those fleets of cars. It matters. <laughs> It, and it matters to people's lives it, if they it, want to buy it a car. It matters to the number. Steven Anderson the says that would have made a great plug for Chipotle. Dude, I will tell you, and I am not sponsored by anyone other than me, okay? The only way you could support this channel is joining me in the programs linked down below on Building Your Wealth. You get lifetime access to the courses, right? Uh, the, the, the thing about Chipotle is, I will say, A, they're brilliant. The fact that they could sell you rice and beans at the markup they do is is very, very impressive. But beyond that, these freaking burritos are just so good, man. I just uh, I just want another one. I'll even eat it like Justin Bieber, which I've done it before. Because sometimes I'm like, I don't want as much rice today because uh, I didn't work out. So, so I'm going to have a little less rice. And so I'll eat it like the fake troll Justin Bieber thing of, of him, them having it sideways. Because if you eat it sideways, you just get the meat and the veggies. And then you don't get all the rice that's on the other side. Uh, and then, you know, if, if you want it all, you, you, you eat it like the normal burrito. <laughs> You've never had Chipotle? Get out of here. You're fired. You must go. You must go. It's so good. It's so good. Just just make sure you don't get the burritos, uh, the burrito rice with, with the coriander, uh, the cilantro. Uh, that is disgusting. But they get pissed at you. They, that is the one, one criticism I have about Chipotle is they get mad at you when when you order uh, a burrito and you're like, I want the rice without the cilantro. They look at you like you're some like scumbag idiot. Like, how dare you not want cilantro on your burrito? And I'm like, dude, I just want the plain white rice. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't have any right now. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's, I, it's, I see it. It's right there. All right. And, and like they roll their eyes because they have to get off the line and go get it. <laughs> Oh, God. All right. I'm going to the course member live stream right after I make a cup of coffee. So I'll be there in like two and a half minutes. Thank you so much for being here. I love you all. Uh, even the haters. You know, I'll tell you, the haters, they watch more of my content than anyone else. So thank you. You lead to the most ad revenue. <laughs> 4D chess complete. Goodbye.